0: guys, welcome back. This is part two of last week's episode about Hedda Nussbaum. So if you have not listened to part one, then what are you doing? Go back and listen to it. I'm just going to get right into it today. I had a bit of a nightmare recording the last episode where I thought I lost all the audio. Um, So I'm just going to get right into this today because there's a lot to go through and it's pretty heavy. So let's get to it. One night, when Joel struck, accused Heda of lying to him, he slapped her face over and over again. He struck her left eye repeatedly and battered her ear over and over again for hours. The next day, he did the same. Her left eye was so swollen, it was almost totally closed. The cheek underneath was equally enlarged and she had cauliflower ear, which she still has today. Um, if any of you don't know what cauliflower ear is, I suggest you Google it. If you are a rugby player... Um, fan, if you're a rugby fan or rugby player fan, I'm both uh, you'll definitely know what cauliflower ear is uh, it's pretty gnarly these beatings would come after he would try to hypnotise her to remember things she had done such as who she had slept with he would use his so called magical stick to beat her knee until her knee broke instead of visiting the doctor she hopped around the house for days Joel insisted she walk on it Unable to bear the pain any longer, she left the house one day while Joel and Lisa slept, taking only her pocketbook with her, which contained just her wallet, address book, a hairbrush and a pen. She hobbled to a phone booth and dialed the number which she had for her old friend Risa. She hadn't seen her for about seven years, although she had invited her and Lisa to her child's party the year before, but Hedda hadn't gone because she had a black eye. The number wasn't in service, so she went to the nearest women's homeless shelter about 10 blocks away. She couldn't think of any other option. This is like the sad part of, you know, trying to leave or, you know, why people want to leave but they don't is like, this is just how isolated you become. Like she had nobody else to call. She didn't feel she could call anybody else. And, you know, going to a women's shelter would seem extreme to most in that situation. So it's a hard thing to do, you know, like... An example I kind of use for it would be, you know, if you hurt yourself or, like, you feel something's wrong and you're thinking, like, oh, should I call an ambulance? And you feel kind of like it's an extreme reaction. You're like, oh, no, like, I'm not in that much pain. But, like, meanwhile, you're probably in agony. It's like, you know, you kind of feel a bit embarrassed almost. You're like, oh, that that's like something that happens to people that are really sick or really in pain or you know if they've had a car accident or whatever but it's like you know you kind of almost talk yourself out of it because you think that's just an extreme and that's kind of how it is too like if you can imagine yourself thinking like oh maybe I can just go to a domestic abuse shelter you know people are always talking about that like go to those places if you need it but then you're also like no that's not me like they would laugh me out the door because you know I'm not having the crap kicked out of me every day or whatever it is Um, and that's just like one of many reasons why you know it's, it's just so hard to leave and to do these things. By the time she got there she was in so much pain she told the woman she needed a doctor. She told her they didn't have one but to go to the nearest hospital which was Bellevue. She handed her the bus fare. At the hospital, she gave the shelter's address as her place of residence and explained her bruises and knee, chipped teeth and dislocated shoulder by saying she had fallen down the stairs. When asked about the old fractures discovered on the, re- the x-ray, she said they were because of an s and cult she belonged to. Uh, such a bizarre reason to give, but she was desperate to not give the real reason. To confirm the story, she told them to call Joel. They did, and he confirmed. He said she had had this problem for years and had been treated by several psychiatrists for it. Bellevue's immediate diagnosis was psychosis. While waiting for bed, Gloria showed up. Joel had sent her to bring Hedda home, but she didn't want to go home. While she went outside to make a call, a nurse thankfully came and took her to her room. The next day, she called Joel. He told her Lisa missed her. He told her his friend Chubby had a really good writing opportunity for her. He was clearly trying to lure her home. During that week, she continued to speak to him once a day. Her doctor told her her injuries were inconsistent with a fall down the stairs. She told him a different story. She said she'd been too embarrassed to tell them what really happened. She was living on the street and was beaten up by two men. He seemed to buy it. On her third day, she saw herself in a mirror and got a shock. Her nose looked different. It had a distorted bump and looked obviously broken. That same day, Joel came in and scooped her into his arms. He was extremely affectionate and sweet. Her roommate later remarked how lucky she was to have such a man. She suddenly felt really lucky too. So when Joel talked to the doctors about letting her home, she was happy to go. So two days later, despite doctors' advice, she left. She never did get her knee fixed. She was prohibited from going by Joel. It healed improperly and still remained swollen and enlarged. There came another five day honeymoon period after she got out. Joel denied having broken her knee, however, saying it was because she kept falling down. She still argued with him when he was wrong, but she was the one who always lost the argument. Because of the cult story she had told, the doctors had called child services. A few days before the visit, Joel gave her a black eye and he charmed his way into postponing the visit. The case was dismissed as before. One day when her sister came round, Joel told her because of her problem with hypnosis, Judy wouldn't be able to look directly at Hedda. Instead, he had Judy sit and Hedda come up behind her to talk. Years later, Judy told her what an eerie experience it had been. She said the room was dimly lit, the blinds drawn. She felt that something was amiss, but she couldn't be sure what. She didn't see her face again for another three and a half years. Joel then began forbidding Hedda from speaking to her at all. He said it was because Hedda had taught Judy how to hypnotise and she now knew the buzzwords which would set them off. Judy felt hurt that Hedda refused to speak to her, particularly as she was going through a divorce, and so she gave up on her. She received a letter from Judy saying she didn't want to have a relationship with her anymore. She felt relief as it was one less danger to anyone finding out. Joel wouldn't even show her the letter as he said it was full of buzzwords years later judy sent her another letter joel again wouldn't let her read it and wouldn't even say what it said years after that she found out it had simply said that she loved and missed her so that's how much control he has over her at this point that you know the fact that she's isolated from her own sister and feels relief at it because now it's one less person to have to cover her injuries to it's just wild and so sad At this point, her father was the only member of the family she was in contact with. Until one day, he showed up unannounced and Hedda told him through the intercom to go to the phone booth at the end of the block and call her. However, the phone seemed to be having problems and so they never heard him calling. He must have assumed she had chosen not to answer and gone home feeling extremely hurt. On the other hand, Hedda thought he had decided not to call and worried why. She called him at home later, but he was so offended he wouldn't listen to her explanations. He never came to visit again. One more down, another step closer to complete isolation. Like, imagine how crazy that sounds to like, you know, your dad comes to visit you and you tell him through the intercom, go down to the end of the street, to the phone booth and call me and then we can have a conversation. But you can't come into my house. Like, it just sounds so crazy and so bizarre. But like, this is how brainwashed and manipulated and controlled you are that you know, your family seems to think you want nothing more to do with them and you have no respect for him. But really, it's just that you're trying to kind of hide what's happening to you and protect yourself and protect them. Joel continued on with the hypnosis accusation, saying that he knew she was hypnotizing him in her sleep. One night, he sent her with a pillow to the bathtub. She slept there for several weeks until he decided she could sleep on the floor in their bedroom. One night, he even made her sleep in the closet. He demanded one day that she stop trying to buzz him and started to choke her. She blacked out momentarily. You'll see how often strangulation occurs in these stories. It's so common and it's one of the first um, physical symptoms that happens to. I'm pretty sure every episode I've done at this point has featured it happening. Another time she tried to escape before dawn to an illustrator she knew in Connecticut named Diane. This time she was leaving because Joel had convinced her that she and Lisa would be better off without her. Before very far, she noticed a blind on the street with exactly, which exactly matched the one Joel had found through his ESP and knew he would love it. That's such a bizarre sentence, but if you've listened to the previous episode, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> she came back and left it for him to find. She made her way to Grand Central Station Diane picked her up at the other end. She explained her battered face by using the cult story again. The next morning, Diane left her at a social services agency and left. The social worker asked where she lived and for her phone number. She ended up back home again and with it came another honeymoon period. Like, to me, that's so bizarre to kind of like just, you know, I know it's a crazy story. She's telling her, oh, I was part of like an S&M cult, but... Um, but you know to drop her off at a social services agency and just leave and then have nothing to do with her like not even stay with her like go to the cops like whatever it's just like very bizarre behavior but again this is like in the 70s early 80s people just kind of kept their business to themselves um so it's not like you know nowadays where I can't imagine there would be many people that would do that I hope not anyways when the physical abuse started again, he began giving her ice bats as a punishment to focus her mind. Hedda thought they were worse than his punches, which were one shock and over, but the baths were a continuous torture. One day it was so bad she sneaked out barefoot in her bathrobe. It was autumn, drizzling and cold. She knew she had to get inside. She ended up a few doors down from her place and stood in the entrance hall. A man and woman passed and asked if she was okay. She said she was a nurse and offered to call an ambulance. Hedda agreed. The ambulance took her to the hospital. She told them her name was Heather, as this was the same place she had been three years earlier when her spleen had ruptured. She didn't want them to find out about Joel. She wouldn't give her address. The next day, two detectives came to see her. She told them she was followed and beaten in the street. They didn't even ask why she was wearing a robe. She ended up calling Joel and he encouraged her to give them her real name. He visited her the next day. The next day, she was home. One night in 1985, Joel ordered her to lie down and spread her legs. For no apparent reason, he began beating her with his magical stick again. This time, he pounded her genitals over and over until her vagina became swollen and engorged with blood. Her periods ended up stopping for almost a year after this. They came back after Joel gave her a healing kick into her vagina. Then she hemorrhaged into the bathtub for an hour. I can't even begin to imagine this how horrendous and the pain of that like oh my goodness like he really put her through absolute hell and it's only gonna get worse another day he made her wear a label saying I am a pig and crawl around on the floor saying oink she did it despite how humiliated she felt and it was in front of a now four-year-old Lisa too. But something even more humiliating he did was urinate in her face. She often wonders why the abuse escalated at this point. Was it because he was getting away with it? Power is an addiction. Lisa was very mature for her age and getting brighter by the day. One thing they loved to do together was make greeting cards, but Joel had to check they were perfect before he mailed them out. One day, he even ripped one up right in front of Lisa. Like, what a horrendous thing to do to a child. Like, you know how little kids get so, like, proud of the little things that they do and, like, you know, the things that they make and all that kind of stuff. Like, I remember my nephew one time, he was... um. It was something that was on the floor like a toy or something and he jumped over it and he was so excited to show me like manda manda look and he's just jumping over it like it was the best thing ever and you know i made a big deal of it and i was clapping and oh my god yeah you're amazing you're the best kid ever and like then to think that you know this little four-year-old is making this greeting card from scratch so proud of it wants to send it to like a friend or a family member or whatever and then her dad just rips it up in front of her because it's not perfect i mean Oh my goodness. At this point, Hedda wasn't allowed to eat without Joel's permission. While he was away on a business trip, she would have to wait all day for his call to say she was allowed to have some food. Lisa also had to ask permission before eating between meals. Although her requests were never turned down, Hedda now believes it was a means of controlling her. When Lisa started school, Hedda became friends with her classmate's mother, Julie. She would even go to her house, which for some reason Joel never objected to. Hedda felt a huge sense of freedom. Joel, however, would continually come up with new ways to torture her. Once he put a needle through her tongue, he said it was to check whether it was true that the tongue had few nerves. If so, she'd feel nothing. Fortunately, it was true and she felt no pain. Because he said she didn't drink enough water, he sometimes forced her to drink a two-liter bottle. He would keep count throughout the day of all of her offences, such as her not coming fast enough when he called her. Then at night, after Lisa was asleep, he would take the exercise bar he had in their room and smash her over the head with it for each transgression. He would then make her clean up her own blood. They both still wanted a baby. Joel's friend and Heda's gynecologist Peter gave her medication to lengthen her cycle. She still couldn't get pregnant. She didn't even think about it being because of the beatings making her infertile. Lisa had a pet bunny and accidentally dropped it one day. She told her mother the bunny was having trouble walking. She knew she'd have to ask Joel's permission to take it to a vet and so she waited until he was home from work. Joel refused. He said it would be a good lesson for Lisa to take better care of her pets. On June 21st 1986 Joel got a call from Peter saying he had his son. There was another child whose mother wanted to be adopted. Hedda was shocked. She had had no idea about this arrangement, but she was thrilled. They named him Mitchell Barnett Steinberg. The abuse continued to escalate despite the new baby. It became common for Joel to call out no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner throughout the day if she did something he didn't like. She was often hungry. She began to steal food while he wasn't looking. The fear of punishment constantly hung over her head. He eventually added no blanket to his list of punishments. She would then have to sleep on the floor without a blanket. On cold nights, he would sometimes add no clothes and she would have to lie there naked with no blanket with the window open. When he was sound asleep, she would crawl into bed and warm herself up without waking him. Oddly enough, he would never reprimand her in the morning if she was still there. Hedda was now getting knocked around by Joel daily. He one day knocked her into the TV and when it almost fell, he accused her of doing it deliberately and gave her another smack for that. Another day, she was holding the baby when he raised his arm to strike her. She yelled, Joel, the baby, but he struck her anyway and knocked her to the floor. She somehow managed to protect Mitchell from the impact. She went to the bathroom with Mitchell to cry and hide away for a while, as she often did. One day, however, she noticed that he seemed distressed and seemed to be picking up on her anguish, so she vowed to never weep around him again like this. She tried her best to be a good mother in spite of the conditions in their home. She had been abused for so long that she had now learned what to do in order to prevent her face from swelling and bruising so much. As soon as she dried her tears, she would run to the freezer for ice. She found putting it directly on her skin and moving it around would often prevent a black eye. Usually by the time she got the ice, Joel would have changed back to being pleasant and they would often sit and have a regular conversation as she rubbed her eye with ice as if nothing had happened. At age five, Lisa was to be in a school performance. However, Joel refused to let Hedda go as he said her head wasn't in the right space. He, of course, went and videotaped it so she could watch. She was devastated to miss it. He would also take Lisa for lunches and dinners but not allow Hedda to go. Lisa would beg for her mommy to be able to come, and sometimes he let her. Joel had started to now include Lisa in his games. After sending Hedda for another ice bath, he would get Lisa to check on her instead of doing it himself. He would even ask Lisa if he should hit mommy and to help her learn. Lisa's answer would always be, no, don't hit mommy. One time, Hedda came out of the bathroom bruised and bleeding from Joel and complained bitterly to Lisa. But daddy's helping you, she said. She realised her complaining to Lisa was totally inappropriate. She needed to be shielding her. As well as including Lisa in his abuse, Joel was now escalating the abuse in other ways. His assaults continued to be worse and more frequent. He would beat her head against the wall until it bled. She would try her best not to cry out as that would earn her another hit. Sometimes pre-attack he would chase her around the bedroom. She knew her running was useless. She would never be able to escape him. She weighed about 100 pounds and was starving. Once, he smashed her mouth repeatedly and split her lip. The injury would continuously open and never be allowed to fully heal from his continuous blows. She ended up with a permanently split lip. She was also no longer able to stand fully straight. Joel would yell at her to straighten up, but she couldn't. He would repeatedly tell her she would never be able to survive on her own and that she needed him. Sometimes he would even hand her a few dollars and tell her to leave. The first few times she attempted to but he would stand at the door to prevent her from leaving this is something my ex used to do to me too um you know in the middle of screaming at me or whatever was going on he would open the door and it would always be like the middle of the night freezing cold and just tell me to go here's the door go but he knew i couldn't because i had no money i had nowhere to go i was in usually in my pajamas no shoes socks um And, you know, it was kind of his way of, like, taunting me further. Um, And, you know, I've told the story before, but one night he locked me outside in the entranceway. Um, And, again, I was, like, in my pyjamas. It was freezing cold. And he was just laughing and taunting me behind the door. And then when he eventually unlocked the door and let me back in, he just sat there and acted like the door was open the whole time, totally gaslighting me, like oh my god i can't believe i used to live like that sometimes when i tell these stories i'm just like was that actually my life like did that actually happen like it's so bizarre to think of that now in the summer of 1987 joel would take lisa on sailing weekends with him and some friends one weekend a neighbor who joel barely knew called david was his guest on the boat when they got back lisa had a large chunk of her hair missing When Hedda asked her about it, she said that David had cut it as she had gotten chewing gum stuck in it. She had no reason then to think that Lisa might be hiding the truth. But now she can imagine Joel getting into a rage after she got gum on her hair and furiously cutting it. On another weekend out, Hedda believes now that Lisa may have been physically harmed by Joel based on some pictures where she has bruises. Lisa's mourning behaviour had also started to change. She loved kindergarten, but now she was dawdling while getting ready in the mornings. At the time, she, was ne- she never put it together that she could be in distress because of what was happening at home. One day, a bruise appeared mysteriously on Lisa's face. She knew Joel must have caused it as she had overheard him coach Lisa to say her brother had hit her, if anyone asked. Present day Hedda knows that she would instantly leave with her kids if she heard that now. But back then, she was an abused and traumatised woman. A professor called Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, an expert on trauma, said that when a person is repeatedly traumatized, the brain secretes endogenous opioids specifically to reduce the victim's terror and ease their suffering. On October 6, 1987, a neighbor called the cops as he heard Joel beating her. At first, Joel wouldn't let the cops in, but they wouldn't leave, so he opened the door. She disclaimed any abuse and said they just had an argument but her battered appearance caused one of the officers to pull her aside to the kitchen but she still refused to say anything so the cops left. Hedda was very sleep deprived as well as starving at this point. Joel had started telling Lisa to throw water on mommy if he ever saw her falling asleep. Lisa never complied but Joel did once. He also started to forbid her from sitting down especially with Mitchell in her lap in case he fell off joel grabbed lisa one day by the shoulders and shook her hedda was shocked he then threw lisa to the floor lisa said nothing and got up following her mother's pattern but joel wasn't done he began shaking and throwing her once again joel told Hedda to make sure lisa wore long sleeves to school the next day to hide the bruises but she somehow forgot and a student teacher reported it sadly no one stepped in Later that week, Hedda found Lisa in the bathtub pouring ice-cold water on herself from the showerhead. Clearly Joel's instructions. They never spoke of the incident. Hedda didn't learn of the incident until a year later, but in the car on a business trip together, Joel slapped Lisa across the face as he said she was staring at him. She had been sleeping and was lying on his client's lap. Hedda remained at home unawares. Instead, she didn't realise that cellulitis was developing on her leg, which Joel had beaten a few weeks earlier. Her legs suddenly turned red and hurt a lot. It was extremely painful to walk on. She stayed in bed all day, only getting up to change Mitchell's diaper or get food. That evening, she received a frightening phone call from a police officer upstate. He said he had Lisa with him. Then he put Joel on the phone. Apparently, a number of children had been kidnapped in the area recently and when a toll booth worker saw Lisa crying in the car, she called the cops to be safe. Joel insisted Lisa hadn't been crying. When Lisa got on the phone cheerily, she told her mother she hadn't been crying. She knew all too well how to cover for Joel also. They came home that night. Although Hedda's leg was in tremendous pain, she continued to hobble around the house serving Joel. The skin on her shin suddenly burst open, releasing thick yellow pus that kept flowing. And that evening, when Joel pushed her and she fell to the floor, a second spot near her knee opened and began to run. With the release of the pus, some pressure was released and she began to feel less pain. She convinced herself it was healing. She simply wrapped her leg in paper towels. She didn't know it then, but her tear ducts were also crushed from Joel jabbing his finger in her eye due to her staring at him. Lisa was also not sleeping at night. Looking back, she was probably terrified too after Joel had slapped her awake in the car that day. On Sunday, November 1st, during lunch, Joel asked Lisa and Hedda if they had had enough water that day. They both said no. He went to the fridge and got a hot red pepper out, cut it and told them to eat it. Of course, that had the desired effect of making them thirsty. He instructed Lisa to keep drinking water if he wouldn't take her to a dinner he had planned that night. They both continued to drink water until Lisa set her stomach hurt. She was worried that her dad wouldn't take her to the dinner and asked her mother to ask him for her. Hedda encouraged her to ask him herself as she felt this was good practice as a child. Hedda had had no sense of impending danger. He'd been laughing all day and wasn't his usual menacing self so she thought Lisa would be okay. She didn't know that he'd been abusing her for over a month and a half. Lisa put down her glass and went to ask her father had to continue to drink until she had to go to the bathroom. So, just to be warned, this is where the uh, child abuse gets particularly horrendous. So, just be warned, it's about to get very dark. The phone rang. She heard Joel's voice, and then Lisa's, and then nothing. Suddenly, Joel stood in the bathroom doorway, holding Lisa, who was limp and unmoving, in his arms. She was stunned. She asked what happened. He handed Lisa to her. She lay on the floor. She lifted her closed eyelids. She checked her breathing and pulse. Her breathing was raspy and her pulse was normal. She thought that maybe Joel had poured water down her throat and nose and she was drowning. She tried to revive her with Joel trying to tell her as usual to do it a different, better way. Joel went to the bedroom to continue dressing for dinner as Hedda tried to save her daughter. He kept telling her to relax he said to let her sleep as she hadn't been getting much sleep lately when he was ready to leave he told her he had closed the bedroom window so lisa wouldn't get a draft he told her he'd call her in half an hour and to not worry so much he'd get her up when he was home she kept trying to revive her from time to time some water and digested food would come out of her mouth then mitchell woke up and she went to prepare dinner for him Joel called and she told him there was no change. He told her she could eat something too. She had hopes that when Joel would be home, he would use his healing powers on her. Lisa's breathing remained stable, so she continued to check on her and waited until Joel arrived home. If you can hear that noise, I apologise. My upstairs neighbours, their vacuum, for some reason, is always very aggressive and i didn't think that would be happening right now so i'm sorry about that but when he got home he didn't try to help her right away he insisted on smoking first and this went on for hours eventually he said he had knocked lisa to the ground and she refused to get up he had evidently hit her hard enough to knock her unconscious eventually he went to revive her he told hedda to clear everything from the bed he placed her on the bed and sat beside her with his arm across her chest at this point, it was 2 a.m., and she had been unconscious for eight hours. At 6 a.m., Hedda got up to use the bathroom. Joel called her back and said Lisa wasn't breathing. She asked his permission to call 911. He said not yet. Finally, he conceded and told her to call. When the ambulance came, Joel snapped at Hedda to get aside. He didn't want them to see her battered body. Joel went with her in the ambulance. She didn't have the slightest inkling that this would be the last time she would ever see Lisa. Soon the doorbell rang. It was the police. They said that Joel had told them Lisa had choked on her vegetables and vomited and asked if any of the food was left so they could have it tested. She gave them the leftovers. They pointed out that Mitchell's diaper was wet. She said she knew but hadn't gotten round to it due to the events of the night. They then left. Joel eventually came home. He said Lisa was still unconscious. He said she was afraid she may be, they may be brain damaged due to lack of oxygen. He put his arms around her and held her close. One of the doctors called to ask permission to drill a hole in Lisa's skull to relieve the pressure on her brain. The doorbell rang and it was a male and female officer with a detective. Someone from child services arrived soon after. Hedda remained quiet until she was asked her version of events and she confirmed everything Joel had said. Then Joel started name-dropping officers he knew. It didn't seem to have any effect on them. He asked if they'd come to ar- to the station to answer more questions. He asked if they were under arrest. The detective said of course not, but that they preferred to question in the station as they didn't have the facilities there. They said they were taking Mitchell to St. Vincent's to be examined. Hedda got dressed and Joel whispered to her to put on a hat. She knew that this was to cover the bald spots from him pulling out her hair and the scabs left by his beatings. She asked the officer to please, please bring Mitchell to her before he left for the hospital. She said of course she would, but she was lying and this would be the last time she ever saw him. She was brought into a small room at the station to be questioned. She continued to go along with Joel's story of what happened. They photographed her injuries. They claimed it was because they didn't want to be accused of giving her those injuries. Little did she know they wanted to use them against Joel. If she did, she would never have taken them. In another room, she was videotaped. She looked bruised, debilitated, dazed and undernourished. She had bald spots in her head with scabs peeking through, a split lip, her leg wrapped in paper towels and leaking pus, numerous scars on her back and a huge bruise on her backside. Joel's old friend Tim, a sergeant, showed up. He was shocked when he saw her. He said his ex had always thought that Joel hit her. She denied it again and said Joel would never harm a child. They continued to question her until they eventually placed her under arrest. She was being charged with attempted murder and endangerment of a child. Both her and Joel were fingerprinted and photographed. They were led downstairs and taken in handcuffs to central booking. A sea of reporters and photographers flashed all around them. She still wondered why all this fuss was being made over her daughter being in the hospital. This would be the last time Lisa would see Joel until the trial a year later. Hedda was put in a cell with eight or nine other women. While there, she learned she could make a request to be seen in a hospital, which she did, and so she was transferred. Her family came to see her and said they had gotten her a lawyer. She said she already had one, but they told her it wasn't a good idea to have the same lawyer as Joel. They had met a woman from Steps to End Family Violence who had recommended Michael Dowd, who had recently represented a woman who had killed her abusive husband and won. He was out of town, but his office then recommended Barry Sheck. Side note, Barry Sheck, if you recognise that name, he was part of the so-called dream team who represented O.J. Simpson at the infamous case. At one point, her uncle came in alone and told her that Lisa had died. It didn't sink in right away, not even when she was arraigned for second-degree murder. Hedda eventually gave the real story to her lawyer, Barry, after originally sticking with Joel's story. She felt she had to get it off her chest after what had happened to Lisa. She told him, I thought I'd never tell this to anyone. She had to speak to Joel on the phone to make funeral arrangements for Lisa. They spent time consoling each other, and Joel expressed his anger that they had turned off Lisa's life support without his permission, once again shifting the blame from himself. Hedda's parents had offered to put Lisa in their family plot, but Joel said that Lisa herself had said she wanted to be buried next to his own mother, who wasn't even dead yet, as if a six-year-old would know to even ask that. He was still trying to manipulate her. When Barry contacted Joel's mother, she said there was only room for her and Joel alone in the plot. Of course, they weren't even allowed to attend the funeral, and so Hedda watched clips of it from the hospital on the news As she washed the little white coffin, she finally cried for the first time in the two weeks since it had happened. In the interim, Lisa's birth mother, Mother Michelle, had come forward and was given the right to bury her, so she had a Catholic burial as opposed to a Jewish one. She was shocked when her parents showed up at the hospital during the funeral. They told her they couldn't get a parking space, but the real reason had been that they were simply too scared to show up. Hedda worried about Mitchell being away from his family. She worried about Lisa's birth mother mother feeling guilt at having abandoned her. She worried about Gary knowing he adored Lisa. She had faith that she would be found innocent. Both Barry and her appointed family court attorney, David Lansner, who had handle her fight for Mitchell, cautioned her to disassociate from Joel and to stop using the name Steinberg as her last name. However, Joel did call her and she answered despite their warnings. They asked each other if they were all right. Joel was in Rikers, he warned her to keep her eyes open at the hospital as it was full of hypnotising doctors. He said they had to work with and for each other to get Mitch back and to be together. He said he missed her and wanted to be with her. He told her Lisa's cause of death had been subdural, subdural hematoma, even though she had had no head injuries. She still didn't get that everything he said was to cover his ass and to influence her thinking. He tried to convince her that her lawyer Barry was worse than incompetent. He said she had to let him monitor everything Barry did and that he must talk to Hedda, even if Barry insisted they didn't. But they never spoke again. So just the power of manipulation again. He is trying to manipulate her from his prison cell miles away. They just never stop. Hedda was to be transferred to the psych hospital to be evaluated. She was put into a locked unit with 14 other patients. She couldn't go outside. All of her calls were monitored. Her visitors restricted. Five days a week, she spoke with Louis Opler, her assigned psychiatrist. He was direct but gentle and she had no problem opening up to him. Little by little, she was beginning to realise that Joel had no magical healing powers. He had created that image of himself. She still very much loved him. The knowledge of how he had used and controlled her was still far beyond her understanding. Nor was him being the reason she was hospitalized in a psych ward and a prisoner. She did begin to think he was a very sick man. Since then, Hedda had learned that abusers are neither sick nor insane. They make rational choices, which means they're quite sane, to choose to abuse their spouses and children but not their bosses or anyone else. This would result in too many consequences. He was a charmer in public and never hit her with other people around an obvious sign of rationality. Shortly after this, Mitchell's mother, Nicole, came forward wanting him back. A judge awarded her temporary custody. She renamed him Travis Christian. Barry advised Hedda to give up Mitchell to Nicole. It was the most agonizing decision she had ever made, but she had to think of him first. She wrote a statement. I have just made the most difficult decision of my life, and that is to stop fighting for Mitchell and to give up all my rights to him. It was so difficult because I truly love Mitchell and have held him both in my arms for 16 months and in my heart for 17 now and will continue to forever. Both he and Lisa will always be an important part of me and I miss them both terribly. Because of my love for Mitchell, I want what is best for him. I fought to keep my rights to him because of my hope that one day I will be well enough to take care of him again. I knew nothing about Nicole Smidgell but when I saw Mitchell on TV Thursday and Friday nights in Nicole's arms from behind my tears I could see him smiling and her beaming with joy and I was now glad he was no longer in foster care but with his natural mother who it seems will give him plenty of love. I believe that it will be a long time before I completely recover from both my physical ailments and the psychological suffering I've been going through. By the time I might be ready to care for him, he would have been in Nicole's custody for many months and would have formed a strong love attachment to her. It would be very painful for him to be subjected to a custody battle or to be taken from her then. One painful separation is enough in a child's life. Also, as I said, I now think that Nicole will give Mitchell plenty of love. So to spare Mitchell any more anguish or disruption, I have made this decision. I know the joy that Nicole has now and will have for years to come. I had that same joy for 16 months. I do not begrudge Nicole her newfound love. I do envy her, but I wish her the best for Mitchell or Travis. I can only hope that one day Nicole will allow me to see him again. Both of Hedda's children were gone forever. They continued to do tests on Hedda at the hospital, including three brain scans to see if she was brain damaged from her injuries. She had damaged the part of her brain which she needed for word memory. She would forget people's names, even those she had known for years. Eye tests revealed she needed surgery for her damaged tear ducts. Her hearing was also damaged. She had a 30% loss in her left ear. She had to fix her split lip and badly broken nose. She was given a drug to help her sleep and to clarify her thinking. She was operated on twice in three days. Hedda finally released her grief for Lisa after reading an article which ended with the sentence, Good night Lisa, and she agreed to testify against Joel. She was moved to another hospital and was continually being evaluated. She slowly began to understand what had happened to her. She began to mourn her losses and stop loving Joel. She reconnected with her family and old friends who came back in contact to support her. Slowly, she started coming back to life. At this point, everyone from TV news reporters to Barry, her lawyer, began to say that Joel would try to say that Hedda had killed Lisa. She was in denial and said he'd never do that to her until one day she heard his attorney, Ira London, on the radio saying he didn't kill Lisa. That's when the truth hit her. Joel's rendition of events was that he had never hit Hedda and he wasn't even home when Lisa was injured. Now she was ready to sue him for assault, as Barry had suggested a while back. Her sister Judy was also ready to fight. An article called What Lisa Knew by Joyce Johnson appeared in Vanity Fair. She had interviewed Joel and it was full of lies about Hedda. Judy was enraged. She got in contact with the well-known feminist Gloria Steinem. She advised Judy to write a letter to Vanity Fair. It pointed out the distortions in the article and defended her sister. It was printed in the next issue. I have left a link for that Vanity Fair article, What Lisa Knew, in the bio if you want to read it and read just how different things were back in the 80s, how different reactions were. Um, well, I want to say that. I want to say that's how it was then. But it's also still kind of like that now. Um, I mean, we've seen it with the Johnny Depp case. We've seen it with many other cases. Um, but it was just... She also turned the article into a book. And it's just very scathing. And, I mean, read the article to see for yourself. It kind of enraged me a little bit, so I didn't even read the whole thing. Um... But it's there if you want to check it out. The two assistant district attorneys assigned to the case were recommending the charges against Hedda be dropped. Joel unsuccessfully sought a case dismissal based on the press hype. He was disbarred because it was discovered he had gotten an improper exemption from the New York bar exam. Peter Cerosi pleaded guilty to the charges of illegally placing Mitchell for adoption. The papers were full of stories of Joel's cocaine use and tax dodging. He was denied bail. Hedda discovered he hadn't been in the Air Force at all. She realised just how duped she had been by him. Hedda started to open up in group therapy about the horrific things Joel had done to her. Eventually, she finally became angry at him. She also became suicidal and began to draw graphic images of her wrists being cut. What good was life without her kids, she thought. But somehow, drawing the images began to release her pain. It became a substitute for acting on the feelings. Visitors began to comment on how much better she was looking. She was beginning to walk taller and straighter. The DA's office dropped charges against her on the condition she would be truthful and no new evidence would come up against her. This came after a long series of meetings. She told them detailed stories of the abuse. She also discovered how much Joel had lied to her about everything, even about how his father had died. She wondered if he had ever told the truth about anything. One day, she decided she was ready to see Lisa's grave and asked a rabbi she trusted to accompany her. She sang her a song. She still continues to visit her grave several times a year. When Joel's trial came around, it was the first time cameras were allowed in a New York courtroom. The New York Post wrote that Joel Steinberg was depicted yesterday as a domineering and brutal murderer by prosecutors who said he beat his illegally adopted daughter to death and so terrified his lover that she did nothing to save the child. But defence lawyers immediately counter-attacked, accusing Steinberg's lover, Hedda Nussbaum, of being mentally ill and dabbling in satanism, sadomasochism and pornography. It was painful for her to read such lies about herself. So too were her family. They gave interviews to the press talking about the beautiful person they knew her to be and how they supported her totally. Early testimony indicated that Joel had been told at the hospital that Lisa might be brain-dead. Hedda was horrified as she had never been told this. Lisa's student teacher spoke of finding bruises all over Lisa's leg, a bruise on her lower back, a black eye and a bruised forehead. She said her clothes were dirty and her hair unkempt. She had a pass, patch of missing hair. Hedda was shocked. Had she simply not seen these things at the time or had she blocked them out? One dramatic piece of evidence was the videotape the police had taken of Hedda's injuries. The papers reported that members of the jury seemed shocked and disturbed by the images Hedda was shocked at her own appearance too. She hadn't realised how bad she looked and how poorly she must have been functioning in that state. She was informed that the medical testimony had demolished each and every one of Joel's previous defences. A New York Times story showed a photo of a detective on the stand holding Joel's exercise bar that he'd used to beat Hedda. There was another picture of Lisa covered in bruises and with a head injury, another in her hospital bed with tubes everywhere. Another showed her little white coffin. Hedda became so distraught on seeing these that she was put on suicide watch. As the day approached for Hedda to testify, Joel made some last-ditch attempts to influence her. The first was in a letter to a Newsday reporter. "'My feelings for Lisa are almost inexpressible. She was the world to me. Just once, look at her smile in one of those photographs and you will understand my feelings. My sadness and sense of loss are more than I can bear at times. Regarding Hedda, I must tell you that I loved her very much.' All that has occurred since has not changed the feelings I held for her. I can only hope that she is capable of the truth when relating the events of Lisa's life and the events of Lisa's last night with us. Given what I have read, I fear Hedda may no longer be the person I knew and loved. The message I would like to give Hedda is, please speak the truth to my jury. And that's exactly what she did on Thursday, December 1st, 1988. She was very nervous, but found it got easier as she went on. It helps not to look over at Joel. Joel. He went on for days, but she felt she was... It went on for days, but she felt she was doing well. The one day she found really hard was when she had to testify about not doing anything while Lisa was unconscious. That's what people had the most difficulty understanding, and so did she herself. When she got back, there were a lot of letters of support and flowers from strangers. If you look at any of the news articles from that time, which I implore you to do because they're very interesting you will see like this woman had so much backlash against her because people just saw her as being complicit like your daughter's unconscious and you left her there all day overnight and didn't do anything. They saw that but didn't see the fact that she was a battered woman who was just completely traumatized and just controlled and you know people just don't understand it they didn't understand it then they don't understand it now i still you know even in recent um articles and things i've seen about her and, like twitter and stuff people still condemn her to this day um so it's very sad i can understand people seeing that but being from the other side of it and you know knowing myself how hard it is and how just beaten down you are literally and figuratively um it's hard to imagine doing it, but it's not completely out of the question when you have been on that side of abuse and you know what it's like. Now when Hedda sees the video of herself testifying, she is shocked at how she appears to be a shell of a woman. Joel had drained her of life. She, however, seemed to be helping many abused women across the country. The media attention was a blessing to women who had never before heard stories similar to their own. Again, this is something I always say, had I known more women went through this, had I known all of the traits and the the regular occurrences that happen, I would have felt so much better knowing I wasn't alone. And it's why I do this job, because I just want to get as much info and stories out there as possible so that you listening can listen and realize that oh maybe i'm not alone or you know maybe my friend that i've been suspecting something is wrong maybe i should look into that a little more etc information is so important she received countless messages of women with similar tales she answered every letter individually but there was still a lot of negativity directed at her Barry informed her there were a lot of people who hated her He said the previous day he had called a car for her and when they realised who it was for, they said she should drown. She blamed a lot of it on the twisted headlines and people not reading the full stories. The defence summation came on January 20th, 1989. It was a direct attack on Hedda. She murdered Lisa out of jealousy. She blamed Joel and then faked mental illness to avoid being prosecuted. She was a poor excuse for a woman and a mother. Then the trial was over. The jury took eight days to deliberate. The wait was agonising. They had to decide amongst four charges against Joel. The first was criminally negligent homicide, which means causing death by negligence, the sentence being one to four years. Then there was second degree manslaughter, which is recklessly causing serious injury, five to 15 years, first degree manslaughter, which is intentionally causing serious injury, 8 to 25 years, and second-degree murder, showing depraved indifference to life, creating a grave risk of death, no need to prove intent, 25 to life. On Monday, January 30th, the verdict was first-degree manslaughter. On March 23rd, Joel was given the maximum sentence of 8 and a third to 25 years. The judge recommended he serve full term without parole. He still continued to deny he abused Hedda or killed Lisa. Joel was denied parole on several occasions, mainly because he never expressed remorse. On June 30, 2004, he was paroled on good behaviour after 16 years in prison. He spent much of his prison life in isolation due to attacks by other prisoners. He was said to have no teeth left from such attacks. After his release, he moved to Harlem, New York and worked in the construction industry and still maintains his innocence. Asked in 2017 by the New York Post if he had anything he wished he could say to Lisa, he answered in a cold tone that dripped with sarcasm. Yeah, I'll never kill you again and I'll never beat you up every day and I'll never make you a torture tot in a house of horror. He also said he lost the best years of his life in prison. Oh, it gives me the creeps to know that I live in the same city as this man. Because, yes, he is still alive. He is still out there. Uh, yeah. I don't know what I would do if I saw him in the street someday. Like, Jesus. Ooh. As for Hedda, she had numerous reconstructive plastic surgeries. She co-facilitated a support group for battered women and later worked as a paralegal for an organization that assists assists battered women. In 1995, she began giving lectures about abuse at colleges and shelters. When Joel was released from prison, she receded from public attention until the publication of her book a year and a half later. The Nussbaum case polarised feminist scholars and activists. Some saw Nussbaum as an archetypal victim of domestic violence whose actions were controlled and restricted not only by her abusive partner but also by the culture at large that denies the seriousness of abuse in the home. Other leading feminists, notably Susan Brown-Miller, suggested that while Nussbaum suffered violence from her partner, she should also have shared full culpability for Lisa's death. And that is the story of Helen Nussbaum. So to end this episode, there is a poem that I came across recently that I wanted to read here. It is called Unstoppable by John Mark Green. He tried to cage and contain you, drain you of your worth, beat you down to nothing with relentless fists of words. He tried to control and desoul you, but you are resilient. Bamboo to his storm, bending but not breaking, now taking back your true form. Courage building like a tsunami, ready to lay waste to his city of empty promises, You will rise above his shallow ruins, like the moon in all her fullness, free and beautiful, so luminous. His hungry night tried to devour you, but you made your own light, which darkness could not swallow. He is hollow and aimless, but you carry life hidden within, a seedling growing skyward toward the sun of better things. His heart is salted earth, his body a walking mausoleum. He loves control and fears freedom. Mistaking intimidation for true power and captivity for devotion. Devoid of emotion, he is dead inside and he wanted to bury you with him in a graveyard of lies. But you will rise. You will shine. You will. You are so much more powerful than him. Unstoppable. (laughs)